0: Our big picture before we zoom into these couple of chapters of Isaiah, as Andy said, the, the stuff he touched on in chapter twenty-eight is a part of this section, and this is kind of the background for this section, really. Uh, we've got to go back in time, though, to get get perspective. If we go back to the second millennium BC, so back to Abraham time, at that time the nation of Assyria. Um, Uh, to the east of Israel, in the Mediterranean, was a great power. Uh, But by the first millennium BC, the time of Solomon, it had become pretty weak. It wasn't a big deal then. But it began to see recovery just around the time Solomon left the throne, around the time you then have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and Israel gets split in two, to uh, to Israel and, and Judah as the two nations. At that kind of time, that's when Assyria starts to be happening again. And particularly at that kind of around nine three five onwards, uh, under the reign of a few kings, including a guy called a lot of fabulous names here, Ashadan the uh, Second is one of those names. Um, around that uh, the the end of the tenth century into the 9th century, um, and uh, Ashurbanipal the Second, II, the Second, you begin to see a recovery. Of Assyria as a brutal and aggressive string of rulers building power, military force came to be feared by people in the area. And it's then, just after that time in the 8th century, that we get the first of our big names that gets covered. Again, another fabulous name. Uh, one of the key Assyrian rulers um, who features throughout Isaiah, Tiglath the III, isn't he? Um, and he's from 745. B.C. to 727 B.C. Tiglath-Pilesa III. He really establishes Assyria as an empire that then becomes an empire for a century, a 100-year empire. The way they'd approach things is that they'd expand out, they'd invade a country, start to get tribute from that country, because you basically an empire is how you fuel the war, war machine. Um, you maintain yourself by getting the resources from the other countries. And you'd install a king who was a king, kind of like a puppet king. They'd do what you wanted. Um, and uh, if there was any kind of rebellion, what the Assyrian Empire tended to do was pick everybody up and shuffle them all around and then scatter them across the various areas of their empire um, so that people found it harder to unite, because at least in the ancient world, but it's true today as well, that if people have their names, their culture, their language, their gods, their land, then those things, they'll rally around that, their culture, their language, their gods, their land. But as soon as, you know, you're sitting next to someone from another land and you speak different languages and you've got three different gods and hang on, a fourth god, and then suddenly it's hard to <laughs> agree on anything to then fight against the empire. So it's a dilution strategy was their approach. Um, a bit different to the Roman Empire, where they'd say, oh, no, no, you keep your gods, just you stay where you are, we'll just add our gods on top of them. And, you know, they, they more do it by just adding in and absorbing underneath them. Tiklath Police and those following him had an eye. They were in the west, and they had an eye on the east um, because, um, uh, sorry, they were in the east, they had an eye on the west um, because of mineral resources, the timber of Lebanon, and through that area, Lebanon, Syria, Israel, the gateway into Egypt and the Mediterranean. So they had an, had an eye on actually getting in that direction um, to extend their empire in that direction. They're a powerful empire, uh, vicious, ambitious, ruthless. You get a sense of their force if you um, you could Google up like the, 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 the gates of Nineveh today in Iraq and you get a sense of the scale. Uh, just the, imagine what it would be like coming in through the desert and seeing these gates designed to intimidate as well as protect. Yeah? Um, you see him in the Bible, Tiglath-Pilesa, called Pul, which was the, the name, the Babylonian name when he was ruling in Babylon. Um, in, the, in 2 Kings chapter 15, we see him under that name. Um, 15 and, and 16, uh, we get his story there. And it begins to then exact tribute from Israel and Judah during, during his reign. Now he dies, and transitions of difficult times for empires and 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 maintaining succession and power for dictatorships and so on. But when next fabulous name, Shalmaneser, V took over, and he's seven two seven to twenty two, he took the throne of Assyria and just kept going. With the there were some uprisings, he quelled them. He continued this power, um, and and and. Shalmaneser was the one who came into Israel, the northern kingdom. They, they tried, this is where first, we've mentioned Egypt here, their first, Israel's first attempt at appealing to Egypt. Um, they, they asked if Egypt would help them out, help protect them from the threat of Shalmaneser V. Uh, but at this time, Egypt was pretty weak and divided as a kingdom. And so in 2 Kings 17, we read about their attempts to get help um, from Egypt. That was, that Egypt was no help. Egypt wasn't any help to them, Bit like here, Egypt's no help. There won't be any refuge. And eventually, we get an example of what I said before, that dilution thing. Israel rebels. Assyria reaches down into Israel, picks them up, and scatters them. Scatters them so much that there was no return from exile for the northern kingdom. They're scattered everywhere. They get all messed up and diluted and intermingled. And, and some of them, in a way, return, who become the Samaritans but it's a very confused and and never fully integrated version of of Israelite existence ever again. And that's a very important date, this um, 722. 722 is the end of the Northern Kingdom. So in terms of Bible dates to learn, 722 BC is a big one. That's when Assyria, under Shalmaneser V, and his military commander. Next awesome name, Sargon. Sargon was, uh, he was, he had a number two, so the second. Um, Sargon. No, I'm into Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening, isn't it? It really is happening. Um, he was the commander during the um, during this end of the Northern Kingdom, and so actually in his records he takes credit for it, claims the victory for himself. Either way, he now c- c- continues this successful succession maintenance of the empire. Uh, continues to put pressure in this area to the west that they want to have control over, despite rebellion, despite unrest. At this stage, Egypt is becoming stronger under a new dynasty, an Ethiopian dynasty. And, and they begin to then put pressure on Judah uh, to, to, to join up alliances, to maybe avoid um, some of these, uh, these pressures uh, from Israel and so on. It's this kind of time here, just, just, just a bit before here, where, where we get, by the way, the um, Ahaz, um, Assyria, Israel stuff in Isaiah six seven eight nine, which is early on in Isaiah. Um, but now onto Sargon, and this is the time we're dealing with now, the Isaiah 28, 29, 30, 31, right through to 39. The, um, the king in Israel at this time is Hezekiah, famous Israelite king, um, and, and uh, a good guy, as far as uh, human kings go, and he has a long reign. 7.15 to 6.87. Um, and we'll see more of him in Isaiah 36, 37, 38, 39. And, and the story about Sargon versus Hezekiah is again found in um, 2 Kings as well, in 2 Kings eighteen, Tell us how you really feel. Um, <laughs> um, great pressure again to escape the, the, uh, uh, the rule of Assyria. Great temptation again to appeal to Egypt. That's why we love this passage here about Egypt appealing to Egypt to help them. In 714, there's an uprising amongst these Western nations. Assyria conquers them. Egypt is no use whatsoever. In fact, uh, Egypt give up the rebels to Assyria, um, who had fled um, who had fled to Egypt for um, uh, respite. The final name, before we dive into our passage, is uh, Sennacherib. Does that, are we still Lord of the Rings, or are we somewhere else now? Sennacherib. Yeah, I always thought of, I always remembered his name, but I think you get like an American. Sakavids. Sakavids. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's the huge rim, so Keith's father, Sargon, when he died in battle, um, once more faces unrest from these Western kingdoms. Babylon sends envoys to Hezekiah saying, maybe we can help you out, Hezekiah. <laughs> Egypt is becoming stronger. Maybe we can help you out, Hezekiah. A coalition is forming amongst these Western nations drawing in Hezekiah. A treaty with Egypt is on the cards to help resist Assyria. And Assyria is not happy. This is where you get the siege being laid to uh, Jerusalem that we read about in the Bible and also in the records of, um, of Sennacherib himself. And so we can actually read about Sennacherib's account of coming on Hezekiah the Judahite, which we would read if we had some time, but we'll move ahead for now. This is the context then which Isaiah is prophesying during the reign of four kings of Israel, but these four great emperors. Uh, of Assyria, and it's particularly this tide, this pressure from Assyria, and a pressure to try and find alliances in the West amongst uh, the nations, including Egypt, that Isaiah says, don't put your trust in humans, put your trust in the Lord. And that's really the, the, the basic, simple theme of Isaiah 40 30 and 31. Don't put your trust in humans, put your trust in the Lord in the face of this terrifying, um uh, Aggressive empire building uh, context that they find themselves in. 30 verse 1 Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt. Woe, doom, trouble. This is actually the fourth woe. Chapter 28, verse 1, woe. Chapter 29, verse 1, woe. Chapter 29, verse 15, woe. And now here's the fourth woe. Woe to those who trust not in God's ways, not in the Spirit's plans, but in Egypt, in human plans. Verse 2, who go down to Egypt without consulting the Lord, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. They're not trusting God. Therefore, their trust is misplaced and unreliable, verse 3. Pharaoh's protection will be your shame. Israel's shade will be your disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys arrive in Haines, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage, but rather shame or disgrace. He'd said a similar thing already back in chapter 28 about um, uh, stumbling over the Lord as the stone, and instead trusting in these alliances and covenants with death that might protect them, and so forth. In order to show how wretched this whole attempt at safety is, Isaiah <laughs> appeals to our sympathy for the poor animals. It's, it's almost like a, a quaint little, uh, what in literature can be called, bathos, where you look at something almost slightly ridiculous that, that kind of rubs home the tragedy of a situation. From the sublime to the ridiculous. Here we're now look at just the poor animals. This whole thing is just a waste of time. And so we get an oracle concerning the animals of the Negev. Verse 6. Through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures on their humps of camels, to an unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore I call her Egypt, the do-nothing. What a waste of time. Poor animals going to all that work through the harsh desert to no, no good end. Egypt gets uh, shade cast on her as Rahab the do-nothing, <laughs> which um, it's a bit like that sounds bad, but I don't know what it means. <laughs> um, Rahab is like a kind of a mythological creature in the Bible, a kind of a mythological sea beast, a sea dragon that uh, elsewhere in the Bible, we, um, Egypt gets called Rahab, a powerful Rahab. The, the, the um, Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. And so the Lord, with his mighty arm, rescued Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus and led them through the Red Sea, the sea where Rahab, the sea monster, dwells. And he cut Rahab to pieces by parting the Red Sea. And through the pieces of Rahab in the wilderness, we read in some of the Psalms. Um, this it, is a vivid way, a mythological metaphor of describing God's power over the mighty uh, powers of chaos, like the ocean, and the powers that are like the powers of the ocean, evil empires of the world. But Rahab's been getting on in years. Rahab's lost a few teeth. (laughs) Rahab's put on a few extra tons. Um, Rahab is now here in a Muddy puddle, (laughs) rather than the chaotic ocean. Um, Gummy Rahab, the (laughs) do-nothing, is the kind of cartoonish picture we have here. Bloated, wallowing in a pool of mud. Useless, toothless sea beast. Don't trust in Egypt. No help there. The fifth woe picks up the same kind of theme in chapter 31. The fifth woe. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses who trust in the multitude of their chariots and the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek the help of the Lord. And yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He doesn't take back his words. He'll rise up against the house of the wicked, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps them stumble, but he who is helped will fall both will perish together. Horses are pretty. If you can harness horses effectively for transport and war, uh, you've got a mighty technology on your hands. And certainly, we we read throughout the Bible, horses alongside princes and chariots. Iron chariots are portrayed as intimidating, fearful technology at that time. Yeah, trusting in those who can harness the power of the horse for war and for safety and for victory. Don't trust in horses, he's saying. It's a false hope, it's a feeble hope, it's a foolish hope. It's dishonourable, it's faithless, it's godless, it's abandoning God for the sake of human strength and the human harnessing here of equine strength. So what's behind this? Well, what we saw at the start of our day, wasn't it? Hardening their heart to God's word, not listening to God. And when they listen, going, ah, oh, it's just like blah, 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 blah. Their eye's eye goes again. Do and do and do and do rule and rule blah, 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 It's being hardened to God's word, not hearing the word and trusting the word. So 28 verses 9 and 10 in that section that we touched on with Andy this morning. Who's he trying to teach, they're saying about the prophet. To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those who are just taken from the breast, for it's do and do and do and do, rule and rule rule and rule, a little here, a little there. Very well then, with strange tongues. foreign lips god will speak to this people or uh 28 verse 16 28 verse 16 this is what the sovereign lord says i lay a stone in zion a tested stone a precious cornerstone it's for a sure foundation the one who trusts will never be dismayed i'll make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line i will do this i'll create something solid sure to trust in and your covenant of death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, verse 18, you'll be deep beaten down by it. You're not trusting in me, you'll be swept away. And so in chapter 30, the same kind of theme about this not trusting God comes up. 30, verse 9. These are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, See no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, leave this way, get off this path, stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Now, I'm not sure if they're literally saying that, but he's saying that's what you're really saying, isn't it? When you're not really listening or saying, oh, he goes on a bit, doesn't he? Or, you know, I wouldn't have put it quite that way. Or, well, there's other things we need to consider here. Let's be sensible. He's saying, you may as well be saying, enough, stop talking, tell us something nice instead. Something along those lines. Verse 15, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, 30 verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you will have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Well, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride on swift horses. Therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one and the threat of five, you'll all flee away. They're hardening their heart to God's word and his promises, his values, his counsel. And so they're drifting into, even like I say, they may not be literally saying these things as explicitly as Isaiah rewords it, but their functional unbelief, where they're putting their trust and plans, it may as well be they are literally saying these things, Yeah. A practical atheism at the very least. A day-to-day paganism. The Lord can be the Lord in theory, like we saw with Jonah at the start of the year. He can be the Lord in theory, in ritual, in confession. Oh, I serve the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, who created the heavens and the earth, Jonah said, didn't he, while he was running away from the Lord as if he wasn't the Lord of the heavens and the earth and as if he didn't serve him. The Lord can be Lord in theory, in ritual, on Sunday, in private morals, even. But in reality, under threat, in public life, civic life, business life, career life, social life, planning life, we can reject the Lord in practice. So that's the challenge to us as we finish this day. Is your hard heart to the Lord? Is it cold to Bible study? I mean, I'm not talking about my preaching right now, but as a general stance towards preaching, do I, as in general, bring my heart and mind to preaching, kind of leaning back with my arms crossed, if you know what I'm trying to say, you know? Mm-hmm. That I've kind of made up my mind already about what I think about everything, yeah? Beware of the territory of slipping into coldness to God's word and God's ways and God's promises that I can end up stumbling over God, taking offence at God, offence at the cross of Jesus that is required for my salvation. Perhaps becoming so moderate and safe in my faith and in my life that it's no different whether God exists or not, really, at all. Dependence on prayer is not a factor, really, at all. Faith and trust in God is not an issue at all. That I become cool and lukewarm perhaps not open to ever really deeply change in an encounter with God's word, defensive to rebuke. Beware. That can start to grow. Beware. Because a hardening heart to God's word, the leaders of Jerusalem attempted to trust in Egypt, not in the Lord and his promises and his ways, and they'll be ruined, Isaiah warned them. God warns them through Isaiah. Now what's the equivalent of not trusting in Egypt today for us? Isaiah says they should be sitting quietly, not going to Egypt, but sit quietly in the face of this great threat. Sit quietly. Um, Sit and do nothing, verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. But instead you go to horses and whatever else. Now, some say, well, that's the same, I guess, a bit like this Old Testament, New Testament application stuff Andy was doing this morning. Some say, oh, yeah, that's the principle, always. Always sit still, always do nothing. I remember once I visited a church many years ago that was in a process of renewal or something, and they had a consultant come in who quoted these kinds of verses. Or it's similar with Abraham. You know, don't do anything. Don't try and manufacture a son. Trust God, he'll give you a son. Abraham keeps trying to... You know, make God's promise come true for God. And and this consultant said that same with your church today. Do nothing. Wait patiently in stillness and silence. um, And God will then bring blessing and guidance and a vision for your church. Sit still, do nothing. Wait on the Lord. That's the precondition to blessing and guidance always. Yeah. Others say never plan any strategies or visions or goals for your ministry. Let God guide you as he will or something. But it's important to understand it, the Bible isn't against planning at all. There's a lot in the Bible about planning and about entrusting our plans to the Lord and, and um, bringing our plans before him. And In fact, Isaiah often has a feel of wisdom literature itself at various points. Um, I've got here in my notes that uh, say, for example, 32 verse 8. The noble man makes noble plans. By noble deeds, he stands. There you go. Or we could think about Rahab. What was Rahab criticised for? Being the do-nothing. Remember, Rahab, the do-nothing. So it's not doing things is always bad. The problem is not with activity. The problem is with worldly activity. That's the issue. Trusting in human schemes and human efforts and ignoring God's means. Sometimes God's means are doing nothing. In this case, they were. Wait, trust, pray. Trust me, God is saying. And we see with Hezekiah's story, as we'll get to eventually in 36, 37, 38, he trusted, he waited, and they came right to the gates of Jerusalem and mocked them in in a language that everyone could understand. Where's your God? Let us tell you about all the other gods (laughs) of all the other nations that trusted in their gods. We killed them. We conquered them. Actually, I've got one of them right here. (laughs) You know, so your God's doomed. And yet they trusted God and he drove back Assyria right from the very gates of Jerusalem. Amazing, a miracle, yeah? It's... it's There is one sense in which, actually, we should do nothing. This, if you like, is the typology um, approach to this passage. This is an issue of salvation for God's people at this time. How will they be saved? Trust the Lord. The anti-type, the, the fulfilment of that type, is our salvation from the judgment of God. The final judgment, the, end, the, the final day. What do we have to do to be saved from the final judgment of the wrath of God from hell? What do we have to do? What plan, what horses and chariots and princes, what Egypt will help us from the wrath of God? Nothing. In quietness and in stillness and in rest, faith, not works. Rest from your works in faith, in God's mercy, in God fighting for you in the Lord Jesus, conquering the devil and sin and death and hell. He's done. He's conquered. He rescues. He brings peace. Do nothing to earn your salvation. Be still. Don't trust in being a good person, nice person, religious person, active in ministry, Successful in life. Rest in God. But in another sense, we could also speak about the fact that, um, as I said, the issue is worldliness, trusting human methods rather than God's methods. And so we could also reflect on the relevance of this passage for serving God at uni fellowship and in church. Don't. As you seek to serve God at uni fellowship and in church, trust in human methods, human wisdom, human craftiness, human technique alone. Don't get sidetracked off to uh, sales techniques or counselling techniques or cultural sociological techniques so that you're trusting in those things rather than prayer, godliness and the clear teaching of the word of God. The methods God has given to us is not Egypt and horses, (laughs) It's not sales, techniques and marketing, um, as the things we trust in. But the things we trust in that we put the focus of our emphasis on is prayer and godliness and the clear teaching of the word of God. It's not that there is an issue with planning or activity, remember, but it's worldliness, worldly activity, and ignoring (coughs) God's promises, God's power, God's methods. Sometimes it means sitting still and doing nothing. Sometimes it means faithfully trusting God's promise and power in the methods he's given us. And the method he's given us is prayer and godliness and the ministry of the word. To fulfil the duty of the ministry of God in these last days, in the days of Jesus' death and resurrection, we trust God. By praying his promises back to him, we trust God by holding out the word of life, clearly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to anyone who will hear. As we've talked about in this excellent panel. If we try and lean on and depend upon some other method, we might find ourselves stumbling into worldly trusting in the Egypts of our day. But our ultimate power and wisdom is the word of the cross. And prayer to our Father, that's what ought to drive ministry, shape it, flavour it, preaching and prayer and godliness. And any other method of marketing technique, um, counselling, style, all these things must be critiqued constantly to not become the goal, the, the thing we trust in, the horses, the Egypt. Isaiah speaks to warn against worldly confidence and urge on us to have great confidence in God. God can save you. God will be with you. God will make your purposes in service of him sure. Trust in him. Rest in him. Serve him. Obey him. Live your life under the shadow of, of God's shelter. Walk forward in the light of God's word. For the flaky, that's a challenge to boldly step forward, isn't it? The boldly, confidently step forward, trusting and serving God. But to the over-committed, over-conscientious, overly um, perhaps intense, yes, person who says yes to everything, this passage is also a great, challenge to go hang on a second have you slipped into trusting in your works for your salvation that somehow God needs you to do all the things and perhaps you need to be reminded again in stillness in rest in quietness in God's salvation and in God's methods rest preach the word pray. And watch the master be at work through you and his people. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, uh, we look back across centuries and still see some things that uh, human nature is the same. The struggles of being your people are the same. The threats might be different, the methods might be different, but we see so much of our day in the people of Isaiah's day and we need to hear that same rebuke not to trust in human activity and power and we need to be reminded of your great word of rest and promise to trust in you, your salvation for us in Christ your methods preaching prayer and godliness forgive us for our worldliness Lord undo the damage that worldliness may have done in our lives and ministries and continue to lead us in a way of of great confidence and rest in you and your ways save us from our sin Use us for your purposes. In the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.